0: alignment this morning. Let's understand the foundation upon which our lives have been established as we listen to the words of the Psalm, Psalm 8, written by David. And so I'd like to invite the person who's reading Scripture to come forward this morning. Put a sentence together is a credit to the grace of God.
1: As Pastor Chris said, this is a psalm of David. And in this psalm, he's praising the creation of God. So if you'd like to follow along, it's on page 376 in your pew Bible. If not, I suggest you close your eyes and just listen to the words. And you'd be surprised the different meaning that you can get doing it that way. Lord, our Lord, You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Keep that Bible open. David begins with a word of effusive praise. I don't know if you caught that right from the get-go. Awe, wonder, and joy pour out from him as he declares the majesty of the Lord's name. That is, the magnificence of God's person over all the earth. He's not just talking about God's name. To invoke God's name is to invoke the magnificence of God's person over all the earth. And David immediately tells us why this is so as he points up. I don't know about you, but I can imagine David looking up one night into the sky and marveling at what God had created as he wrote these words. He simply looked up and saw the glory of God reflected in the skies. You know, centuries later, where we are, thousands of years later actually, population growth and electricity have reduced our visibility of the same skies that David gazed upon. Our man-made and artificial light squelches the glimmer and glow of the heavens above us as they were created by our Father. I want to share something with you. Last year, photographer Terry Cohen attempted to show us city dwellers what we're missing. I'm going to show you a slide in a second, but let me give you a little background on this. In an extremely extremely creative and dynamic photo exhibit called Darkened Cities, Cohen attempted to unveil the star-studded nights still enjoyed by less populous parts of the world. Before he photographed a single shot, however, Cohen did a little research. He matched large metropolises like Hong Kong and New York according to their latitudinal alignment with more remote spots like the Mojave Desert and the Amazon jungle. Cohen photographed the cities by day to capture the silhouette of their skylines, and then he darkened them in post-production. Then he dropped in the more vibrant skies he found in places like the Western Sahara, behind those blacked out skyscrapers. And this is one example of the result of his work, if we could have that slide. That's the Los Angeles skyline as it looks without all our electricity. Take a look at that for a second. When's the last time you saw a sky like that? It's beautiful, isn't it? Even when we go up, as we were with the the youth uh, away from some light. You don't see it like that. It's just amazing to look up and to see these celestial vistas hidden from the naked eye. Because we leave the lights on at night, (laughs) you thought you weren't afraid of the dark anymore, right? Because we leave the lights on at night, we miss the panoramic view of supernovas and star clusters. We do not see the sort of sky that David. David saw that took his breath away that stopped his heart in his chest and led him to fall on his knees in praise of the Lord I don't know what as we just even look at this and it doesn't even do it justice could you imagine standing under it (laughs) it's gonna be one of those days I can tell I don't know about you but when you look at a star a sky like that the realization that the more that we learn about astronomy the smaller we all seem to be. I mean, truly, our planet is but a small speck of dust in a vast amphitheater, as David thinks about. Author Philip Yancey, if you're familiar with him at all, once reflected on the glory of God's creation in this way. He wrote, if the Milky Way galaxy were the size of the entire continent of North America, our solar system would fit in a coffee cup. This vast neighborhood of our sun, in truth, the size of a coffee cup, fits along with several billion other stars and their minions in the Milky Way. One of perhaps a hundred billion such galaxies in the universe. To send a light speed message to the edge of that universe would take 15 billion years. God's handiwork is truly staggering. Again, I don't know about you, but so often I lose perspective. My life, my concerns seem so huge. And then I realize that I'm one of 6.8 billion people on this earth and that this earth is a relatively tiny planet in a vast solar system. And this solar system is just part of a small part of our galaxy, and our galaxy is just one of a hundred billion such galaxies in the universe. And suddenly I can connect with David. It gives me pause. I mean, clearly it gave David pause too. And this, it's worth remembering, David was a king. David was a very successful and mighty king. David, as a king, knew something about glory and honor and majesty, perhaps in ways that we don't. And yet, David shares with us that the starting point of orientation of our lives, the starting point of orienting our lives is to look out and to look up. To look out and to look up. Are you like me? Do you find yourself that you're so busy looking down We're so busy looking down, preoccupied with all our plans, preoccupied with all our worries, preoccupied with all of our work that we fail to see, we forget to notice what David reflects upon. And it's not the stars that I'm talking of. What we fail to see, what we forget to notice that David reflects upon is this. We are not the center of the universe. We are not the center of the universe. When we hit a valley in our lives, as we walk through the desert, when we hike up the mountains in our lives and reach those pinnacle moments, we need to glance skyward and stop and let the staggering wonder of creation truly sink in so that we remember, so that we're oriented to the fact that God, our Father, is King. He is the center of the universe. He is the Father of all creation, all glory, all honor, all majesty. Our full and undivided attention belong to him. Beloved, the enormity and beauty of God's creation is one of the ways he displays his glory. But as you heard Patty read, the David's epiphany here is about much more than that. As we grasp the enormity of what God has created, as I briefly modeled to us just a few minutes ago, we self-reflect as we look up, as we look out, we then then look back down and look within, and we ask, "Who are we? Who are we?" This is the essence of David's reflection as he considers what God has created. Let me hear. Let you hear it again. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? That the son of man that you care for him? It's a great question. It's a great question. If God is to be praised for the vastness of what he has created, where does that leave us? We're nothing. We're small. If God gave shape to the heavenly bodies, the universe, did you hear how David described it with his fingers? Why should he concern himself with humanity, with earthlings? Why would God pay any attention to what's going on in a
1: tiny
0: corner Of the universe. But he does. One way to to look up as we gaze and see the planets held in orbit with mathematical precision, one way to look up is to take in the extraordinary nature of the cosmos as a whole and to be overwhelmed, to feel small by our insignificance. But if you follow David, we realize that God wants us to look the other way, not with insecurity not with insecurity, but to look with profound awareness, profound awareness of our significance to him. (laughs) Have you ever had the experience of looking at someone and then suddenly realizing, noticing that they're looking at you? You ever had that experience? You're looking at someone, and then all of a sudden you realize, it happens like in a flash, you realize you're not looking at them. They're looking at you. This is what happens to David. Do you catch that? He starts the psalm by looking up and perceiving the glory of God. As he speaks, but as he speaks of your fingers and of your hands, referring to the power and dexterity of the one who created all this, there's suddenly a shift in David's perception as he also realizes this God is personal it begins to occur to David this God gets personal in making us human beings the particular objects of his attention all of a sudden it sinks in for David that his heavenly father is looking at him and not surprisingly this just floors David he is overwhelmed with amazement beloved The first point of orientation is not looking down, but looking out and looking up. But the second point of the orientation of our lives is the realization, the assurance, that out of all that God has created, in spite of the mind-boggling chasm between we humans and our God, the second point of orientation is realizing our creator is mindful of us, that our creator is looking at us. You ever use the expression out of sight, out of mind? Out of sight, out of mind. We've all heard that expression before. And think about it. In a world of countless human rulers and kings, I mean, can we list all of the human rulers and kings that are out there? In a a world of countless human rulers and kings, how many subjects of those rulers and those kings have languished unknown? Does President Obama know your name? Did any president ever know your name? How many subjects remain languishing, unknown, out of sight, out of mind? Or worse, with some kings and rulers, how many not only remain out of sight and out of mind, but remain uncared for in the farthest reaches of their empire? Think about that. Do you ever ask yourself, I mean, I know we often talk this way, but does President Obama ever think about what's going on in your life? I won't open up that can of worms. But in any any part of the world, it's not just a a President Obama thing, in any part of the world, think about how many people feel that way about the kings and rulers that oversee them. And yet David says, no, no, it's different with this God. Our Father is mindful of us. We say out of sight, out of mind, but we are never out of God's sight and therefore David says we are never out of his mind. We live on a speck of dust in all that God has created and yet David says he's chosen to crown us with glory and honor. He's given us his image. Beloved, he's mindful of us. He cares for us. When you realize, like David, that God is looking at you, do you realize God is looking at you even now? When you realize that God is looking at you, it changes your life. When you finally understand that you aren't looking for the Lord as much as the Lord is looking for you, it saves your life. I mean, that is, in essence, the turning point of salvation. When you realize you're not looking for God, God's looking for you. And God's come looking for you in the person of Jesus Christ. It saves your life. The search, the meaning of life, the reason you exist, the question of whether your life has purpose, the struggle to find your destiny, in that moment when you realize that God is looking at you, that God is looking for you, it's over. You aren't lost anymore. You're found. You're found. Just ask Francis Collins. Ever heard that name before? Francis Collins is a scientist. He headed up the Human Genome Project and has all kinds of credentials. He is a world famous scientist, but he was also an atheist. And after a long period of searching, which included grilling a pastor and reading C.S. Lewis, Collins finally came to Christ after watching the beauty of creation. This is Collins' description of that life changing encounter. Hear what he writes. I had to make a choice. I had to make a choice. A full year had passed since I decided to believe in some sort of God, and now I was being called to account. On a beautiful fall day, as I was hiking in the Cascade Mountains during my first trip west of the Mississippi, the majesty and beauty of God's creation overwhelmed my resistance. As I rounded a corner and saw a beautiful and unexpected frozen waterfall hundreds of feet high, I knew the search was over. The next morning, I dealt, I knelt in the dewy grass as the sun rose and surrendered to Jesus Christ. David would like this, I think. David would like this, to take a walk outside in a remote place, to look up And worship the God who created all of this. Look at the beauty of what he's created all around us and then bow down and surrender your life to him. Realize as you do that the praise of the weakest person is stronger than the most powerful of God's enemies. Did you catch when David said that? That is something. When David says in this Epiphany that the praise of the weakest person is greater than the avenger or the foe. The praise of the smallest, the weakest of persons is stronger than the most powerful of God's enemies. Praise him for the staggering enormity of creation. This kind of revelation causes David to worship. It led Francis Collins to give his life as an act of worship to God. How about us? where are you at the midpoint of this message this morning? Are you moved to sing right about now? Some of you, I'm getting that look. Some of you, I'm getting that look. You're not awake yet. Are you moved to sing right now? Are there words of praise and thanksgiving Silently passing from your lips, from the depths of your soul, as you hear this psalm, as you consider the heavens, as you absorb all your father has made, and as you realize, as David declares, that in the midst of the struggles of your own life, that the praise of the weakest Christian is more powerful than the strength of God's most powerful enemies. Beloved, are we being drawn to worship this God we can know there is a God. We're here, I imagine, because we know there is a God. We can know there is a God. We can believe that this God died for us and for our sins on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ, which again, I believe is the reason that you're here. We can open our Bibles as we have this morning and we can read them, read them as the, wor- the words as the Lord left them for us, as we've done this morning. We can raise our voices and lift up our heads in song as we've done this morning and in prayer towards the heavens. And we've done all of these things this morning, but do we appreciate, do we realize as we gaze up into the vastness of what God has created, the beauty of the Milky Way, the wonders of an ever expanding universe, that our Father is mindful of us, that our Father is looking back at us into our eyes, into our souls, that our Father looks upon us as more than mere creatures. He is mindful of us because we are his image bearers. Because we are his children. This is the deeper place. If you still have that Bible open, this is the deeper place that worship takes David as he continues in writing. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. What David is basically saying here as he reflects deeper is a commentary on Genesis chapter 1, which is the account as we all remember of when God created humanity. David is saying that despite our size in the universe, there is something utterly unique about us. If you created, David said, a continuum of every creature that's ever been created, from bacteria all the way up to angels, we'd be right next to angels. Though we can often act like it, people are not animals. Though we often act like it, people are not animals. We bear the image and likeness of God. It's when we become forgetful of God, the image that we bear, that we become bestial that we act like animals. Our feet are on the ground, as often some of our appetites and desires are, but if we look up, if we realize how mindful God is of us, we discover we've been created to long for something higher and purer, something this life, this world cannot offer us. And this instinct is one of the imprints, our creator, one of the ways that he's made known to us that we were made for another city we were made for another place. Out of all that God has created, and emphasize the all, it is men and women alone who have been made in his image and crowned with glory and honor. We have a unique role in the universe. We've been given, we have been given dominion over all that he's made. And this leads us to the third and final leg of orientation. We're oriented by looking up and looking out. We're oriented by realizing that God is looking at us, that God is mindful of us. But the third leg of our orientation to our lives and to this world is becoming aware that the God who is mindful of us ought to make us more mindful of Him. In other words, we are to be mindful of the world as God is mindful of the world. This world is part of God's kingdom, but God has chosen humanity to have dominion over his kingdom here on earth. This is the great invitation and challenge of being human, of being reflections of our father as his children. I mean, you think you have challenges, you think you have invitations in your life, David says the fundamental invitation and challenge of life is reflecting our father by taking care, by being stewards, having dominion over all that he's created, not just our little corner. We're all in this together. We have been given his image and have been charged with the responsibility of acting on his behalf. How we live, how we engage this world, how we encounter each other is the best reflection of our worship of God. Hear that again. It's not the songs we sing, it's not what hymnal we use, it's not the prayers that we pray, it's not even the kind of sermons that we get or the way that we take communion or the way that we do baptism or the size of our sanctuary or the way that it looks. The Bible says over and over again, how we live, how we engage this world, how we encounter each other is the best reflection of our worship of God. The scriptures call us again and again in worship to worship in spirit and in truth, right? Among other things, this means that true spirit-led adoration of our Father is intimately related to how we handle the power we have been given. How do we handle the gifts that we've been given? How do we use the skills that God has given us? How do we use the resources that we have been given? The time and opportunities that are put before us. Through the prophets, as we go through the Bible, the Lord repeatedly tells us that he desires mercy, not sacrifice. He's not looking for us to lay ourselves on the altar with all that he's given to us. He's asking for us to share what we have been given in a way that's merciful and compassionate. In other words, God wants us to worship not just by looking up, but also to by be reaching out. That was what was so moving to me yesterday, going through the fields, picking vegetables and fruits with the students, realizing the hands that would receive this food and what a difference that would make. Realizing that what I did for two and a half hours is what some people spend their entire day, their entire lives doing. And when I was hot and sweaty and achy, and I'm like, well, okay, the, the fun of this is worn off. Realizing that I'm so used to when I want food, I just pull out my money or my debit card and go to the grocery store and buy it. But this is what it looks like to actually live off the land. God has given and then to hear I mean your response was the same as mine these crates and crates of different fruits and vegetables filling up this truck and the person who was there saying you have fed a thousand families in two and a half hours of all of us young and old our group and other people we didn't even know who we began talking to working together that's worship That's what our Father has called us to That's worshiping in spirit and truth. All our sacrifices and gifts to our Father are meaningless, the Bible says, if they're not directed towards the objects of His desire. And the objects of God's desire are us. And that doesn't mean ourselves. What God specifically points to is He wants us to direct our worship to the objects of His desire. And God tells us regularly, His heart is for the poor. His heart is for the poor are for the marginalized. His heart is for the abandoned. His heart is for the widow, the orphan, the prisoner. And this isn't an exclusive list. God's heart are for the ones who often get ignored, neglected, who aren't seen. Worshiping in spirit and truth means using the power we have been given by God to empower the powerless. That's how we reflect the image of our Father This is how we fully and faithfully live our lives in worship, not just a service, not just a Sunday, not just a song or a prayer, but through our lives. Worship is about living responsibly. It begins with how do we even think about the other person, our neighbor? That's where it begins. It ends with how far are we willing to go in sharing the love of our Father with our neighbor? If there is a limit to our forgiveness, if there is a limit to our mercy, if there is a limit to our grace in the lives of others, then there is a limit in our worship of God. This is how much power we've been given. Do you understand that? Don't hear that from the negative. If there's a limit, this is how much power we've been given. This is how blessed we are. We have been given almost unlimited power and authority. The only limit that we put on that power and authority that God seeks to exercise through us are the limits we put on ourselves. This is how mindful God is of us, and therefore, this is how mindful we ought to be of him. It's an amazing thing. But I'll be honest, if if you're there right now, it can also be an overwhelming realization Much like David, an overwhelming realization. Our stewardship of all creation? The great commission? How can I take care of the planet when I can barely keep my own house in order? Let alone the car I drive. It can be an overwhelming realization. Our mutual stewardship of each other. I'm my brother and sister's keeper, the great commandment? How can I love my neighbor? How can I be my brother's keeper when I struggle to take care of myself? let alone to care well for the people God's put right in front of me, my wife, my kids. It's an overwhelming realization. It's an amazing word, but it's an overwhelming realization, the great commandment, the great commission. But that's when we hear that great commandment, when we hear that great commission, we come back as David does in his own way to the good news, the gospel. And the good news, the gospel is, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us it's about him it's not that i'm mindful of god first it's that he's mindful of us what he calls us to whom he calls us to be he makes possible beloved you see the most incredible revelation the most inspiring manifestation of the promise that god is mindful of us comes hundreds of years after david wrote this psalm do you know that Centuries later, God himself became man and lived on this little speck of dust. And not only was he mindful for us, not only did he care for us, he became one of us. And out of infinite love, he offered up his life for us so that we could be made right with God. Did you know that in the New Testament, this psalm, Psalm 8, is quoted many, many times in reference to Jesus? And here's the reason, if you have those Bibles open. Verse 6, David says, God has put all things under our feet. Now, you and I know we don't, it doesn't take much for us to look at each other and know we live still in a time where because of sin in this world, because of what's still broken, not everything is under our feet. We're not in control of this world. We know that. All it takes is a change in the weather, amongst other things, a sudden thunderstorm, or worse, a natural disaster to remind us that we're not in control of this world. No, we have not fulfilled God's plan to put everything under our feet. Our worship, the worship of our lives in service to our Father is not perfect. But Psalm 8 is not just wishful thinking. David is not just waxing poetical here. What he envisions here isn't fully blown yet. We are nowhere near perfect. But there is one who has come since David penned these words who is perfect. We can't see what David sees, but we can and do see Jesus. The one man who is already reigning, the one who is single-handedly fulfilling God's plan on our behalf, who has all things under his feet. If you want to later, go look to the letter of the Hebrews. And look in chapter 2, where Hebrews 2, that second chapter of that letter will quote this psalm, and then says, But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone writer of the Hebrews is saying everything is at Jesus' feet. Jesus has been crowned fully with glory and honor. And the writer of that letter goes on to say that in Jesus' victory, the Christian has received the glorious renewal that David anticipated. When Jesus became one of us, fully human, he realized God's expectation of humanity in perfect obedience and holiness. Jesus became our forerunner, becoming what we are so that we might become what he is, so that we might become who we are created to be, truly and fully human. So if we're overwhelmed by the great commandment and the great commission, it's not about us. It's about him. And it's about letting him take over our lives it's in the assurance of our redeemer that we can have confidence of the redemption of our reign as well it's in the joy of our great high priest that we don't have to doubt the future of our royal priesthood and so david ends we come at the end of this psalm if you have those bibles open it's quite interesting to me the psalm begins as it ends praising God, and yet, if you notice this in just eight verses, our understanding for why we praise the Lord has shifted. We began by affirming the magnificence of the creator, right? That's where David starts, and at the end, however, we stand in awe of his grace in elevating humanity to an unimaginable heights of glory, honor, and responsibility. Beloved, the whole gospel stands and hangs on this simple yet profound truth we are seen our father is mindful of us the dignity of humanity is a gift of god that is upheld by a relationship of responsibility and a response of praise it is when we deny our responsibility and withhold praise that we live in an undignified manner as human beings So what are psalms of orientation? And Psalm 8 is only one of them. Psalms of orientation are those that ground us in the foundation of our lives. And the foundation of our lives is the constancy of God's goodness, his reliability, and his blessing. And out of that grounding comes our power and our authority and responsibility. That's the orientation of our lives that the psalms will come back to again and again and again. We don't need to be perfect. We don't need to do it in our own strength or by our own wisdom. We just need to be dependent upon God. We just need to look up and out. We just need to realize he's looking at us, that he's mindful of us, and out of that awareness, we need to be mindful of him. We need to surrender our lives to this great God. We need to go out one step at a time, one moment at a time, putting our trust in Jesus as we encounter whatever, whoever comes before us, relying on what Jesus has done, and relying on what Jesus continues to do through us. If we live our lives this way, if we're oriented in this way, we're living in the awesome reality that our God is mindful of us. If we live our lives this way, if we orient our lives in this kind of responsibility, then we are being mindful of God and his call upon our lives. If we live in this way, if we're oriented in this way, we cannot help but cry out like David, "O oh Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. Will you pray with me? Grant, O Lord, our Father, that what has been said with our lips, we may believe in our hearts, and that what we believe in our hearts, Father, may we practice in our lives. We ask this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord.